later we're going to get through with the first chapter, but we get so much you want to grab hold of every part of it. It's there, four chapters of letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He was in prison in Rome, and it didn't look like there was any way out. And it looked like he was doomed, and he didn't know how to handle that other than he knew what things he could hold on to in the middle of a situation that seems out of control. And we're living in a week that's been a situation out of control. There's so much uh, destruction that we saw this week as we locked uh, Hamas as they attacked the Israelis. And they came in a way they never expected. And it seemed like that um, they were kind of warned by the American intelligence, but they paid little, uh, little attention to it. And all of a sudden, there was the Hamas, and it's a religious group who uh, think they're serving their Lord, or at least their Allah, by uh, getting rid of the infidels. And you could watch the things that happened, and they were kind of really uh, disturbing. That's a good word for it. As they came in and kind of indiscriminately killing people and... and uh, killing babies and killing children, and just in the name of Hamas. Hamas is a kind of acronym for uh, Palestinian Liberation Front, and they are trying to get back the land that they feel like the Israelis took from them uh, back in 1948 when the Gaza Strip was given to Israel, and yet they're occupying both of that uh, uh, Gaza Strip and it looks like that things are just out of control. If you have your bulletin, would you look in there? There's a prayer guide that uh, Southern Baptist Convention has put out that we can pray. Uh, we can pray for the hostages that are there and pray that they will be released. Uh, we can pray for the Israelis. We can pray for the Christians that are caught there in Israel. And there are a lot of things that we can pray for. So if you would... Just people have asked me, what are some things that we can pray for? Is a kind of a guideline to go through. And I hope this week you will take time to follow this guideline and pray. It's amazing what um, prayer of Christians and how it changes things. So let me encourage you to do that. Um, but we also look like an out-of-control situation in our, in our Congress. It looks like they can't even elect the Speaker of the House. <laughs> Doesn't that encourage you? <laughs> that, uh, and they're, they're coming up later on and, and they're going to uh, kind of pass measures on the government funds. And are we going to have a, still a government who will not be funded? And what will happen about that? So life sometimes looks like it's out of control in different places. But in the middle of that, we know that there's a God who is still in control. Amen? And I don't know with all the things that are happening, and sometimes you think God is love, God is all-powerful, and yet evil exists. And the scenes we get from the Gaza Strip and how they went through these settlements and they just indiscriminately uh, shot people and took hostages, and how could God be in that? And I don't know all the answers, and I cannot give you all the answers, but this is a world that somehow gone crazy and God has in, 
has a plan to bring it back together in Jesus Christ. And one, one of these days, he's coming back. And until that time, we hold on to promises in God's word and let God's word be our guide. And um, there have been people down through the ages who have gone through similar things. There's a man named uh, Victor, um, Victor uh, Frankel, and he was a, a Jewish psychologist. And he lived in the times of uh, German uh, taking Jews and putting them in concentration camps and, and killing so many Jews for no reason whatsoever, except for Hitler had gone crazy and done some crazy things. And Viktor Frankl was a noted psychologist and he had an had a attractive kind of practice. He was doing well, and all of a sudden, his home was taken away. His family was sent away in a concentration camp, and he was placed in a concentration He was stripped of his clothes and had to wear the uniform of all this, and he, he saw life as just being out of control. And yet, Viktor Frankl said this, they can do all these things to me and they can take these things away from me, but they still cannot take my attitude. And the one thing that I can give to this moment is I can decide how I will respond to this situation. And he found out this, that those who had meaning beyond the moment in those concentration camps made it whereas those who had no meaning beyond the moment died away, going away, and just gave up and quit. Now, where do you find meaning? And that's a good question, and he writes about that. And he says, meaning is found in the things that we do well. And we have gifts in different places, and each one of us has a gift that God has given us. Each one of us has an activity that we do that we do well and we fix things well. And I know a man who was in my church when I was at Elkdale. He was very good with car electronics. That's what he did so well. He worked for Mr. Carneal for so much, and then he decided to go out on his own. But his idea was electronics. He could do it well. And people came from all over this county and, and different counties to bring their cars to him and he would fix them because he knew electronics. And when he would fix those electronics, it was like his contribution to life. And he enjoyed that, and he got meaning and purpose out of that. My dad and I used to make airplanes in World War II airplanes. Dad was a mechanic in, in World War II and fixed these planes. And he and I would get together and get these bombers that uh, kind of come in kits, and we would make them together. We'd take fishing line and, and run it down my room and we would after we'd get through we'd paint all those emblems on them and put them up there my dad and I just enjoyed that together and I will never forget those kind of moments that we had together it just gave me a sense of meaning and when we do those things with sense of meaning we just say yes there's a purpose in it Sometimes we get sense of meaning, said um, uh, Victor Frankl, out of things we cannot do, but others can do and we enjoy it. I wish I could play the piano, but I enjoy him playing the piano. If I play the piano, we're in trouble. We would empty the house. 
Or Frank, if I could sing, I'd like to sing. And I do sing in the shower. I sound like Elvis in the shower, but you don't want to hear me in the shower. Uh, when I, a lot of places, when I was at Judson, I'd go to these small churches, and, and I led the music. I did everything but take up the offering in these small churches. They said, we'll take up the offering. Don't worry about that. But I had a loud piano player. And as long as she was playing loud, I was doing well with the music. If she ever got soft, I was in trouble. So I always had them just singing all their hearts out and singing well. In fact, there was a church that I led the music at that is no longer there in Perry County. In fact, it's not there. They even took up the foundation. You can't even find out where the foundation is. I hope it wasn't my leading the music that did that. But I enjoy Murray, I enjoy Frank, and I enjoy this choir, and I enjoy music, and, but I can't do music. Not my gift. But I can enjoy those who do have that gift. And when they play and sing, I, my heart just joins with them. And I play and sing in my heart, and I, as long as there's a group with me, I can sing out loud. I sang one time in church where I was in the army and we sang the Alleluia chorus and the guy next to me had his finger in his ear and so I just, I took the hint that I would not leave it singing. But I enjoy those who do. I enjoy those who can do things that I cannot do but I can enjoy. But then there's meaning comes not only for what we do and and what we can't do that others do, but it also comes from going through adversity and hanging in there. Because all of us face adversity, some form or another. We all face adversity. And adversity comes our way, even if you're a Christian and dedicated your life to the Lord, sooner or later you will face some kind of adversity. And how do you handle that? Some people get bitter. Some people get better. Some people find the Lord the closest they've ever found him when they go through the fact of losing a loved one and having to walk out of that cemetery and leaving their loved one there. And somehow they got to go back to an empty house. And it's a lonely place. And some people just do not quit coming to church. They quit reading their Bible. They quit praying. And yet those that find the Lord even in those, yea, though I walk through that valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For they are with me even when I cannot feel him. The promise of his word is there with me. Now, Paul is going through adversity in Philippians. The church has sent him some money, and he was one of the few churches that he could accept money from because the rest of the word was kind of out that Paul works, and he's just out for money. So he refused to take money from so many churches, but he knew he could do that with the best of meanings from the church at Philippi. He was in a prison. He hadn't seen this uh, congregation in 10 years, but he longs to see them. 
And so he writes to them, and he still prays for them because he knows that they are praying for him. So he is facing the Roman law and the Roman judicial system. And since he's a Roman citizen, he has a right to have a trial before Nero. And Nero is this narcissistic kind of uh, crazy kind of guy. is so set in himself that he's blaming the Christians for all the problems that he has had. So the one that seems to hold his life in the balance is this kind of narcissistic maniac. And, and what Nero would do would take Christians and, and put them in, in poles outside his gardens and he would put them in pitch and tar and then he'd burn them while he rode around in his chariot. That was who Paul would have to face. So Paul's not knowing whether he's going to live or die. That's a tough place to be. I have prayed with so many people that were in those places. And they had to make that decision sometimes for themselves. But this is all out of his hands. But it is his hands how he's going to approach that. It's always in our hands and how we're going to approach it. And what kind of attitude we're going to have as we approach those kind of crisis moments. So here he writes, and, and what he has in the middle of this is the word joy. Joy is a gift to be received by the Holy Spirit, but it is a blessing to be filled. you got to work with it. It's just like anger. You can fill your heart with anger and fill it up. As long as you feed that anger, it will keep growing. But if you quit feeding that anger, then it will kind of shrink. So joy is something you kind of keep feeding, and you feed it by remembering past things where God has done some great things, remembering that God has a, he's not going to let us go. He's going to, one starts with us, he's going to keep us going. And remembering that one of these days, there's a place that God has prepared for us who have known Christ as our Savior. And one of these days, he'll come and receive us into his own. And when that day is, no one knows. But what we want to do is to be prepared for that day. So Paul gives us a verse. If you have your Bibles in uh, Philippians chapter 1, if you will stand as I'll read from verse, one of the best verses I know of. Verse 21, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, let me encourage you to do that. For to me, do you see that personal pronoun? That's a personal pronoun. So it's not everybody's decision. It has to be accepted on an individual basis. My mom was a fine Christian. But I have to choose to make my decision about Christ. For to me to live... Is Christ, and to die is gain. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Now from verse 19 to about verse 26, here's 
kind of it's a personal, intimate thing that hardly any of us, it's, it's called a soliloquy, um, a personal soliloquy. Um, it is, uh, we talk to ourselves, and he's talking, he's trying to sort this decision out as he's sitting in this prison cell. He's trying to sort through this. And as he sort through this, he says, there's some things I know, and he lists those things I know. And he lists what he doesn't know, and this is what he doesn't know. And then he lists, this is what I know. So look for a moment at the scripture that we have. And all of us do kind of, a, we all talk to ourselves. I mean, um, we get in front of a mirror and say, wow, Tom Cruise, amen. Taylor Swift, amen. And we talked to her. I said, boy, you look good today. No, you got a bad hair today. today. And I always have a bad hair day. So anyway, but uh, we talked to her. I said, careful, careful. You going to let them say that to you? You going to back down from that? And we all talked to ourselves. And here's... Paul with a reflective, it's called a reflective soliloquy. He's trying to sort through his decision, and when you come to those places of decision, how, how are you going to act towards this? And Christ came to that place of decision in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the only place we ever see Christ that's out of control, seemingly, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the only place we see him sweat is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he went in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he got in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked his disciples to be with him, and he went a little bit further, just a little bit further, and he knelt down. Then he got down on his knees. Then he got down on his face, for there's some things, the only place you face them is you face them face down. Oh, Lord, help me. And so Jesus prayed this prayer. And what he's facing is not so much death, but the kind of death is that he's facing. He's facing a kind of death in which he's going to be separated from God and the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him. The garbage of all this world is going to be placed on him. And he says, why have you forsaken me on the cross? But here in the garden, he's looking at that, not just the death. And I've seen men and women face death, some with all trepidation, some with all, all kinds of feeling. And as he's facing that, Jesus said, take this from me. And then he uses a conjunction because my salvation and your salvation hung on a conjunction. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it was such an awesome moment that he prayed it three times. And those three times that he prayed it, God said, it is not my will that you get away from the cross to take this cross. It is my will that you have this cross placed upon you. And when Jesus comes out of the garden, he's no longer sweating. 
He knows that what has happened is going to be a rough road ahead of him. But he knows that he's in God's hands as he faces it. And so the confidence that seemed to be lacking in when he entered the garden is the confidence he had as he went out of the garden into the hands of the Romans. Now Paul is in the hands of the Romans. There are two guards that are chained to him each and every day. The Praetorian Guard. While he was there, he got to, and it's like the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers, the Praetorian Guard. They guarded the political prisoners and they were also out in front of the army as it went to advance in all of their war situations. So Paul would share with this Praetorian Guard about the message of Jesus Christ. And when missionaries went to other places, they found that their people already knew about that because of Praetorian God. Because God can bring something good out of every situation. And there are people that are preaching Christ, some out of right motives and some out of wrong motives. So God says that, um, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to make that my, I'm going to rejoice. Whatever happens, I'm going to rejoice in this situation. So in verse 19, Paul says, this I know, that this shall turn out for my salvation. The word there, salvation, means to be saved from your sins. But in this situation, it's going to turn out for my deliverance. I'm going to be delivered in this moment. I know that. Somehow or another, God's going to deliver it. And how he's going to deliver it, it says in verse 19, is through your prayers, through your prayers. Never underestimate the power of the church at prayer. Never underestimate the people that we pray for and how God can use that prayer and somehow deliver a person out of a situation. So Paul says, I know that your prayers for me is going to make that. And also the supply of the spirit of Jesus. And what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working in this world. It has been working ever since God said, let there be light. And the Holy Spirit worked and there was light that was brought into the world. So he's working in situation. What the Holy Spirit gives us is not only wisdom to know what to do, but he also gives us the strength to do what we ought to be done according to my earnest expectation. And here's my hope, says, says Paul, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, that there will come moments and I will be bold in those moments. And I remember... Uh, guy shooting a high school in Colorado and he just indiscriminate went from room to room shooting and there was this girl that was sitting there behind her desk and he said are you a Christian and she said yes I am and he pulled the trigger Could I be bold in those situations? Paul says, help me to be bold in those situations. The way Rome um, um, destroyed political prisoners was to cut off their heads. We saw that this week. Could I be bold in that situation? Can I stand up for Christ? But can I stand up for Christ in everyday moments? In my language, 
and the way I treat others. Help me not to be ashamed. Help me to have boldness of Christ. But I don't know who, how this is going to turn out. I don't know whether he says or not whether I'm going to live or die. I don't know those moments. But then he addresses that and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, if, if, if I live, Christ comes to me. If I leave this earth, it is gain because he has a place prepared for me. And then he says something very deeply. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, and yet what I shall choose I do not know. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it's in life or whether it's death. Whatever happens in this moment is in his hands, not my hands. It's not even Nero's hand. There's a God behind even Nero that's kind of God's activities. Whatever he happens. I'm struggling here. I want to go home to be with the Lord. That's a place that God has prepared for me. But I know I have a responsibility. So I don't know what to do. Um, tell you about a lady named Ren Hanut, who I just think the world of. Susan and I just think the world of. She's um, an Auburn graduate. This is not a good time to be an Auburn graduate. Amen. Things just not going our way. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Roll Tide. You know, no, not really. I, I'm not going to abandon my team even in hard times. But Ren and her husband, Sam, um, graduate from Auburn got married and, and we're in the uh, catfish business for Tyson Foods. And he was one of the pioneers in the catfish business and he did well. And when they retired, they came back to uh, First Baptist Church there in Fairhope. And at First Baptist Church, Wren is just, Sam would teach the Bible in their Sunday school class and Wren was just a personality of that group. She was always a personality. Her home was like Southern living. It looked like something out of early American. Everything was in its place. Everything, pictures were hung everywhere. You could look under her bed and in her closets, and they were all clean. I wouldn't say that for everybody, amen? And she could cook. She made cheesy catfish. Man, cheesy catfish. She's probably in heaven today making that cheesy catfish. But she also made bread pudding. We want, I had, she was on any committee I wanted to be on. She was on every one of them. And I'd ask her, I said, Ren, I really need help in this place. And Ren would just jump in there and help me out. Uh, whenever we had a meeting, our church burned down. I don't know, that never in seminary did they cover how to deal with your church burning down. <laughs> Things don't go away. You just burn it down, build another one. That's what we... No, not really. But anyway, uh, she was on that committee. When we make a decision, uh, she would make, uh, and she wanted a decision to go her way, uh, she would bring bread pudding to the committee. Now, listen, Baptists are, are set in their ways, but you feed them bread pudding, and then they'll go along with anything you want to do, at least serve bread pudding. Um, but when Sam died... Uh, Susan and I just tried to comfort her because she loved him very much. And I put my arm around her and I said, God's not through with you yet. 
God's not through with you. I know you're going through a hard time. But God's not through with you. And she led her class. Kept leading her class. They got somebody else to teach the Bible. And the class continued to grow. So many times I'd been in that house. When she passed away, they called Susan and I, and uh, she was in a bedroom, and I just wouldn't go in there. I sat in that living room and remembered the times that we had had there with her and Sam, and also with church groups that we met with. And then they came and carried her out of that house. That house she left behind. That house had been the focus of her life and her ministry, really. But they carried her out and her house was left behind. At her funeral, I just felt like I needed to kind of address that, and so I, I did. I, I, I said there was a little boy in a tenant house, and, and in that tenant house, he lived on a tenant farm, and the farm went under, and when it went under, they asked his dad to kind of run the farm. And so as he did, they said, we want you to move up to the big house on the hill. And so the little boy, that last time he was in that shotgun house that he had lived in for so long, he wrote a note, on the, put it on the screen, and on the screen he put these words, no longer live in this old house, gone to live on the mansion on the hill. For me to live is Christ, to die is to leave this life behind and to go to that place that God's prepared for me. And it is so awesome. Over here, sometimes we see life's worst. But over there is God's best. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can be better than God's best. They carried her out of that house, but she had already gone that place that God had prepared for her. Now for Paul, if you have your Bibles, look in verse 24. Paul says this, as he poured that out to God in that soliloquy, as he just sat in that prison cell, pointing it out, he wondered which way, and he just, God gave him that sense, it's going to be okay, you're going to stay. Um, Hannah wanted a baby so bad, and and she went in the church and prayed, and she prayed and prayed, and her husband's other wife. Now, if your husband has another wife, you're in trouble. Amen? The other wife kept, I got children, you don't have So Hannah went and prayed, and when she prayed, Scripture says she poured her heart out unto the Lord. And when she got up from that prayer, she knew what God was going to do. Because when you pour your heart out to the Lord, somehow God gives you that sense of his direction in the inner place of your heart, even though you hadn't seen that done yet. So Paul says this, I've gotten an uh, answer to my prayer. And having this confidence, I know that if I abide and continue with you, 
for your furtherance and joy of the gospel. God's still got work for me to do, and I'll rejoice in that work that I have for you. There's still many people that he can touch lives to. So his work in this life is not was not over. There would come a time in 2 Timothy when his trip was over. It was done, and he kept the faith, and he says, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But right now, he says, you have work, further work to do. Now, here's what we serve a God. We serve a God who can take empty situations and fill them with meaning. Whatever empty situation you look like and whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever that empty situation, God can take that empty situation and fill it with meaning. For Joseph, his brothers threw him in a pit. Now, how many of you have ever wanted to throw your brothers or sisters in a pit? Confess, it's good for you. Get rid of that. They threw him for a pit and got the best price they could get for him. At the end of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. An awesome God. God can take time prisoners and set them free. And he set Paul free. And he can set you free. Those caught in the grip of something that doesn't seem that they can let it go and it won't let them go. God can take that in that grip and he can set you free. There was a man named Mel Trotter. And Mel Trotter was his, his grandfather was a drunk, his daddy was a drunk, and he was a drunk. Alcohol has a way of coming down generations, and it has a family hold upon generations. And Mel Trotter was a drunk. He, he would go on these binges. When he was drinking, he was angry and mad. When he was not drinking, he was a great guy to be around with. And he'd try to hide his alcohol, and yet he couldn't hide it by his manner approach. And sometimes he would go on six-week drunks, and he'd come back. And he came back on one drunk, and, and his wife said, Mel, I cannot go. I've got to stay with the baby. But Mel, here's a prescription. We need this prescription for the baby. And here's some money for that prescription. Now, now, Mel, don't go and buy alcohol with this. You Go and buy that prescription. But he didn't do that. He went and bought some alcohol and threw another drunk. He came back, and there was this casket of his little child there. And Mel Trotter took the shoes off that baby's feet and hocked him and went back on another drum. As he was walking down to the edge of town, there was this meeting going on, a camp meeting, one of those old-fashioned camp meetings where they have sawdust on the trail and, and a tent meeting. And he just, regular folks, was singing. He was singing all those Christian hymns that we sing. They were singing. As they were singing, 
He went past that. And this old man who had done those things that he had done and the grip that had on his life felt God call into his heart. And he listened to the preacher. And he had a God-filled Beltrada had a um, mission that God called him to. He cleared up his alcohol desire, but he sent him back to talk to other drunks. And he carried on a mission throughout his community and throughout his world, encouraging others in his same boat that he had been in to know that Christ who had set him free and given him life. That's the Savior that we serve. Now, would you turn with me to hymn number 283? And here's one of those Fanny Crosses. Look at the bottom and you will see that she wrote this hymn. Thousands of others she wrote. She had this gift of writing. The word redeemed is a good word. Um, the last slave ship that came across the Atlantic, as you can see the memorial they have there in Mobile, it was there. And there they took these slaves and would sell them on the Crotilda, the last slave ship. The word redeem means to buy back from slavery. That's what it means. And there's a story about a, a lady who was being sold on the block and, and a man just, God just kind of put it on his heart to buy her and he bought, bought her and brought her to his home and she became the homemaker in his home. And he treated her so well that when she was set free, she decided to stay home and stay in his house and also in where her place was there and to raise a family and to be the servant in that house. He enjoyed her master so much. Redeemed. She was redeemed. She was bought from slavery. But all of us who have no Christ as our Savior know that we are redeemed. Bought from the slavery of sin, bought from the slavery of what could have been Bought from some habits that kind of held on to our life. Bought and set me free to follow the master. Now, would you just bow your heads as we have the uh, hymn before us, and we're going to sing that in just a minute, but I always like a time of prayer. Something about when the church is gathered. I mean, our individual prayers are great, and, they're, they're, and God listens to those. But he says when two or three are gathered together, there's a special sense of his presence. And so we're in his presence in a powerful way. So what is something's on your heart? What's that that maybe has a grip on you? Maybe it's anger, maybe it's sadness. God's still got a purpose for you. And he's still got a place for you. Do you know that to live for Christ is all the things? And do you know that you know that to die is far better?
for just in a moment. Maybe you need to join this church. If you're a Christian, if you've claimed Christ as your Savior, you need to be among God's believers and say, I want to be a part of what this church is doing in Selma, Alabama. Dear Father, I thank you for God who is with us, who will not forsake us, who doesn't run from suffering, but is even there. Is greater than the evil that is here. And one of these days, you're coming back, and you're going to settle it all. Until that time, whatever our decision, whatever our crisis moment, Help our meaning to be real as we hold on to you even in the darkness of some places that life throws at us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.